Baby booms, periods of increased fertility rates, usually delineated by national border, but not always, are, like many types of boom or bust cycle, be they related to economics or the over or under production of corn or some other crop, are often only recognized and designated after the fact, because in the moment it's typically difficult to see the big picture and recognize the steady inflation of whatever type of production but also the pivot from one state of being into another, the segue from underproduction or normal production into some consistently elevated level of production, all of which is somewhat strange language to use when talking about the production of babies. But that's how things tend to be explicated in the world of statistics and statistical analysis. You collect data, you crunch the numbers, and then eventually, someday, you are able to compare those numbers to other batches of numbers and say, okay, from this year till this other year, there was a significant slowdown in corn production or a massive increase in human production. And those periods are then labeled corn crashes or baby booms. And we can use that delineation to figure out what led to what and how to calibrate things in the future to better match our intended outcomes. One such period that stands out in the West in particular, but which also had some resonance elsewhere at the time, was a couple of decades during which baby-making hit a high point after several decades of fairly steady decreases in the same. Those decreases were caused by many things, but quite a few of those many things were connected to the consequences of early-stage industrial farming that led to so-called dust bowl conditions in the United States and in some other rapidly industrializing countries in the early 20th century and the economic collapse that became known as the Great Depression, which began in the United States but spread around the world, knocking out fortunes and supply chains left and right, combining, in many cases, with those unfortunate agricultural circumstances to create global food shortages, global work shortages, high rates of global poverty compared to what had been seen recently in wealthier countries in particular, and a confluence of other dire statistics, like increased mortality from malnutrition and disease, increases in all sorts of crime, and a marked decrease in fertility rates. And that latter figure is thought to be both the consequence of industrialization, because people didn't need as many kids to work their farmland as before, but also because, as that farmland went barren and fortunes dried up, people simply couldn't afford to feed as many kids or might not have been healthy enough to bring kids to term. Thus, leading into the 1930s, there had been quite a few variables nudging the birth rate downward globally, but that was especially true in the more rapidly industrializing, on average, more globally financially connected, on average, West reaching its low point sometime in the early 1930s before ticking back up a little bit in the early 40s and then surging in the mid-40s 
until the early 1960s. If you think back to what was happening in the mid-1940s, this will probably make a fair bit of intuitive sense to you. The ending of World War II, especially for the U.S. and Europe, but also a fair portion of the rest of the world, led to significant changes both in the sense that people weren't bombing each other into oblivion with the same enthusiasm as they were during the war, but also because of the massive influx of money that went into rebuilding in places that had been physically devastated, but also elsewhere, like in the U.S., where money was flowing and production was still at wartime levels. And government programs led to the rollout of new infrastructure, even as gobs of credit was made available to a lot of people who wanted to build new homes and move to newly developed suburban regions that were popping up everywhere. Regions that were basically optimized for growing families in the burgeoning middle class, most of which could afford to have a couple of kids for purposes other than working on a farm. There were a lot of government programs focused on upping the population in various parts of the world around this time. As the war had taken a toll on everybody, some way more than others, of course, but most nations wanted to maintain their replacement rate, having more people enter the country through immigration or birth than those who died, so that the country continues to grow rather than shrink. And that meant incentivizing citizenry to have more kids, which in turn meant banging the drum for patriotic procreation, while also making sure the economic foundation for having that type of family set up was in place. But there also seemed to be a sense that folks were just keen to settle into something more stable after a long period of uncertainty and death and devastation. And this is a cycle we see replicated throughout history, both in wartime periods and during and after famines and pandemics and other moments of great unrest and upset and unpredictability. People stop having as many kids for a variety of reasons during the most tumultuous, dangerous, uncertain moments. And then when things seem relatively stable and safe again, and people can celebrate the end of the war or the return of food to the shelves, they go a little crazy and start doing the things people do that result in babies. Maybe partially in a celebratory way, but also one would think in a let's build a better sort of life and world sort of way. After a period in which imagining that kind of world maybe became a bit more difficult. What I'd like to talk about today is another cycle of this kind that may be developing right now and how it might play out considering how uncertain the variables catalyzing it seem to be. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled Eco-Anxiety, Fear of Environmental Doom Weighs on Young People. This is one of several pieces that have been published over the past few years on this topic, including one from Scientific American entitled Therapists Are Reckoning with Eco-Anxiety, 
and even pieces from Healthline and the American Psychological Association, which give eco-anxiety the same symptoms-causes-do-you-have-it treatment that they give other, better-known conditions like depression and eczema. Eco-anxiety is not generally considered to be a thing unto itself, though. It's one manifestation of other, broader types of anxiety or stress, or in some cases depression, that are focused on or triggered by a particular collection of concerns that orbit the grander uber-concern of climate change and its many causes, consequences, and secondary repercussions. Recent studies have shown that young people in particular, which in this context means people ages 16 to 25, are profoundly impacted by this collection of concerns, and more than half, 57% of people in this age demographic, are experiencing levels of stress or anxiety related to this topic that have either resulted in visits to doctors or some kind of tangible negative behavior ranging from self-harm to making decisions about their life based on the assumption that the world is collapsing in some fundamental way, according to a survey conducted in the UK. That is not a nonsensical assertion to make. The world as we've known it in the 20th and 21st centuries thus far will almost certainly be changing, and many of the foundational components of that way of life, like having fossil fuels at the base of our technological and infrastructural stack, will indeed be going away in the relatively near future, mere decades, if everything goes according to plan at least. But many of these concerns are predicated on the worst-case outcomes of climate change, which could mean their generation suffers the bulk of the consequences of previous generations' decisions and lifestyles, ranging from massive waves of climate migration, hundreds of millions of people strong, upending infrastructure wherever they go, and persistent electrical blackouts, persistent drought conditions in many heavily inhabited parts of the world, large coastal communities being vacated or barricaded against rising ocean levels, ideological conflicts stirred up by autocrats taking advantage of these changes and this uncertainty to attain power, and resource-based conflicts resulting from a new era of shortages and belt tightening after a long period of presumed abundance and, in some parts of the world at least, practical near-infinitude. Those more extreme assertions are also not nonsensical. They could all happen, and even worse things could happen as well. There's good reason to believe we're equal to the task of preventing the worst of them, and even finding a new better balance with our ecosystems and larger global environment. We kind of have to at some point, if we want to keep surviving and thriving. But it's understandable that some people might fixate on the potential downsides, even as they try to prevent them. It's a sort of built-in psychological defense mechanism that isn't at all uncommon to gird yourself by preparing for the worst, even as you hope and plan and work for the best. One of the choices the data we have available is indicating that many young people are making, or at least purporting to make, at this point in their lives, is to not have kids. And there are myriad cultural and generational reasons for such a shift beyond the discussion 
of climate change and eco-anxiety. But many people who have been surveyed on this topic have indicated that they just don't see this as being a good or proper or kind moment to have children. Because we are in and approaching a period of great upset and unrest and perhaps dangerous and uncomfortable change, and bringing children into that kind of equation would make the fight for something better more difficult for them, but would also potentially be quite harmful to their theoretical child. Like having a kid during the most fragile, fatal years of World War II. It's the same sort of thinking we've seen in surveys and writings from past periods of warfare and plague and economic or environmental devastation. We can barely face what's coming or what's already here. As adults, why would we be so cruel as to bring new children into the world who would have to face the same with arguably less capacity to face it than we have? From some perspectives, then, including arguably the historical one, this seemingly popular opinion, and I say seemingly because the data on this, like with most surveys, is more susceptible to various types of statistical flaw than other types of data collection. But this seemingly, based on the information we do have right now, popular opinion, from some perspectives, makes a lot of sense. It's a decision based on the reality of our situation, according to some interpretations of that reality, and perhaps even more so the predicted reality of what we're about to face as the whole world goes through a possibly very difficult inversion and evolution, which will almost certainly, even in the best, most optimistic cases, lead to a long stretch of confusion and uncertainty even if we manage to avoid the lion's share of conflict and catastrophe. You could also view this particular perspective, though, through the lens of how baby booms and busts have tended to work in the past. The climate-related issues we face are not directly equivalent to anything else we've ever faced in documented human history. And even the pandemic that still rages on as of the day I'm recording this is not equivalent to other pandemics. Every such event is unique because of when it happens, who it happens to, the technologies and social mores and individuals informing their chronological range. And thus, although we can learn a great deal from previous pandemics, directly copy-pasting regulations and medical approaches from the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 won't likely result in terribly positive outcomes when it comes to more modern pandemics. Now that said, after past periods of cataclysm and upset, there have almost always eventually been moments at which things began to normalize, and the fears associated with that recent horribleness don't go away, but they cease to be all-encompassing. Those worries leave a scar, but they're no longer an open wound. In the case of eco-anxiety, many experts are saying that while the current moment is important, and the anxiety felt by young people and people of all ages related to this topic is concerning and real, it's likely that at some point this all-encompassing anxious feeling will begin to diminish and scar over. And that assumption is partially predicated on how psychologically difficult it is to maintain a heightened fight-or-flight mental stance 
for more than a few years before that stance begins to shift into the background to make way for new concerns. And yes, new things to stress out about because we're human. But they also think this might be the case because the world is now tilting toward doing something tangible about these concerns. And though there are still very good credible reasons to be worried that the promises being made by governments are not enough, and that even those promises may not be lived up to because of the nature of our governments and economies and the incentives that guide them, we're also pretty good at justifying the things we need to justify, and at some point, even moderate action in the right direction could allow us to set aside some of these concerns in favor of what may come to be seen as more pressing issues. This movement in that direction, credible or not, could give our psyches permission to stand down a bit, to not go away, but to not be so sharp and all-encompassing. There's a concept in economics, cost internalization, which basically means that you move the external negative costs of doing business onto the company's balance sheet. So if you're a company that makes widgets, but you're typically able to outsource your manufacturing overseas, and the waste produced by your manufacturing process is thus external to you, it's felt by the people living in the communities where the manufacturing is happening as pollution, but not by you or your customers. That is a negative externality. Internalizing that cost would mean you pay for the cleanup, or you pay to invest in manufacturing methods that don't produce waste in the first place. A lot of companies and many industries are engaging in some type of cost internalization right now. And part of that shift is related to regulations, which make it either legally necessary or financially prudent, because they'll be fined if they don't, to internalize those costs, which in some cases means figuring out where the costs are to begin with. But many companies are going through this process either to preempt assumed near-future regulations to try to prevent regulations from being implemented in their industry or to get ahead of their competition for the day in which regulations inevitably are implemented, or they're doing it from what amounts to branding purposes. They want to be the company making clean, non-polluting denim that uses natural, non-toxic dyes and which is manufactured in locations with equipment that keeps any runoff from making its way into the local water supply. Google, for instance, recently made an announcement about a flurry of new sustainability-related moves across many of their products and platforms. Google Flights, which helps folks find plane tickets, now shows estimated carbon emissions for each flight on their platform, which can help those who are trying to lower their personal carbon footprint choose the right flight path, or can maybe even incentivize them to look at other, less polluting travel options, which is, by many metrics, a step in the right direction. It's an idea that might even carry over to other plane ticket purchasing platforms, becoming something like the caloric information you see on some restaurant menus in some places around the world. It's a means of making the negative impacts of certain choices more visible. And in some cases, these indicators just fade into the background, but in others, they can help shape the decisions we make toward better versions of the same in a relatively passive way. In isolation, each of these brand pivots and efforts are relatively small, 
you might receive an email from your favorite clothing company telling you that their new line of jeans are made in a cleaner, better, more sustainable way because they care about the planet and are moving all their stuff in that direction as a consequence. In aggregate, though, this type of shift is potentially quite meaningful in terms of moving various industries toward more sustainable practices on scale. At the individual level, these same pivots can keep our awareness of such issues on the front burner, for better and, in some cases, maybe for worse. It's arguably quite important right now to keep these sorts of issues at the forefront of our minds because lacking that awareness, or at least awareness adjacency, we might behave in ways that amplify the problem rather than helping to diminish it. And although there's not a lot most of us can do individually to influence the global scale components of these problems, there are things we can do locally to make them better or worse. And we can also, some of us, vote in ways that help with the national scale permutations of this bundle of issues. So reminders of this kind arguably play a role in nudging things toward the more optimistic version of these much worried about outcomes. For those who are already stressed out or anxious about these issues, though, these constant reminders will maybe strike a different chord. And this could become more and more of an issue for some as more of this process becomes visible. The same things that help us keep this conversation front and center could also keep those eco-anxieties from scabbing over. Business internalization is feeding efforts meant to enable individual internalization of our personal negative externalities by helping us see the impacts of our choices and consequently maybe making better ones at least more of the time. A world in which these sorts of reminders are pervasive could lead to more eco-anxiety if we're not careful about how we manage the concerns we already hold. On the other hand, seeing visible manifestations of movement could help reduce such anxiety. And that's potentially true of large government-scale shifts, but also simply having the mainstream reorient itself around more eco-conscious decisions could make this slow-moving disaster seem less like an inevitability that must shape every choice we make about our futures, and more like a process that we're a part of, and a process that, if we stick with it, may actually take us someplace pretty great even if it's a place that won't be recognizable in some ways from the world that we've come to expect in the post-World War II era. That reframing, in turn, could be the psychological pivot that pulls us out of this still theoretical baby bust and pops us back up, maybe even into a baby boom, as people begin to consider, hopefully with justification, how and in what ways the future will be better than today, rather than worse. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called When Women Invented Television, The Untold Story of the Female Powerhouses Who Pioneered the Way We Watch Today by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. 
I picked this book up because I realized I didn't know a whole lot about television history, and it's utterly fascinating how many innovations in the format, but also in how the business models developed, were oriented around people, in particular women, but also people of color, and other groups that did not hold a whole lot of power at the time, how much of their insights and preferences, but also their peculiarities of not fitting within the traditional mold, led to a lot of the tropes and standards that we take for granted in the way television shows work. And that especially applied in the day of broadcast television, but it applies today too in the era of streaming television. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of When Women Invented Television by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a whole bunch of information and links about my other projects, my podcasts and writing and such at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.